welcome to our program today. I'm Dr. Grossbach. I'll be talking today about the uh, latest clinical evidence for incision management in uh, posterior spinal surgeries. So I'm Dr. Grossbach. I'm the uh, residency program director at Ohio State University, also the deformity and robotics fellowship director and uh, assistant clinical professor. These are my uh, disclosures. And uh, here's a little information about the uh, program today provided by the uh, North American Center for Continuing Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from 3M Healthcare. So here's our learning objectives today. So what are surgical site infections? You know, obviously they're infections at a surgical site, but there are some, some definitions that kind of are uh, specific to surgical site infections and the, and the different types that there are. And so surgical site infections occur in two places. One is in the incision itself, and two is in organs or spaces that are accessed during the operation. So, uh, you know, peritoneal cavity, things like that. Two-thirds are, are confined to the incision itself, and, and one-third are uh, involving organ spaces or, or uh, other areas accessed during the operation. Incisional surgical site infections are divided into two categories, uh, superficial, which are the skin and subcutaneous tissues, or uh, deep, which are the deeper structures. So in spine, which we'll be talking about today, you know, we're not accessing organ spaces, except if we're doing like an ALIF or, or something like that. But for posterior spine incisions, they're going to be, you know, confined to the incision and they're going to either be superficial, so skin and subcutaneous tissue, or deep, which is below the fascia. So superficial surgical site infections, these occur within 30 days of the operation. And... Uh, they have one of the, the following, either purulent drainage from the incision, organisms isolated aseptically uh, from cultures, pain, tenderness, redness, heat, and the incision is opened intentionally by the surgeon for a washout or, or a debridement, or a diagnosis of a superficial surgical site infection by the surgeon. It doesn't need all of these, but one of these is enough uh, within 30 days to classify it as a uh, superficial surgical site infection. The other type when we're talking about, you know, spine surgery is the, the deep surgical site infection. So these are, are typically below the, the fascial layer and these occur within 30 days of, of the operation. Again, like the superficial surgical site infections or within one year, if instrumentation is placed. So any sort of, you know, fusion surgery where we're doing, you know, screws and rods that extends that, that period out to, to a year to classify that as a, a deep surgical site infection. So, uh, in addition to the time frame, needs one of the, the following. So purulent drainage from the, the deep incision again, but not from the organ or, or you know, intra-abdominal compartment and things like that. So this would be, you know, subfascial uh, around the instrumentation if there's instrumentation. The deep incision spontaneously dehisses or, or falls apart or is deliberately opened by the surgeon uh, when at least one of the following signs or symptoms is present. So fever greater than 38 degrees Celsius, localized pain or tenderness, unless the wound falls apart and you obtain deep cultures that are negative or an abscess or other evidence of infection in the, in the deep incision uh, below the fascia found by direct examination uh, during reoperation by the pathology uh, or by radiology. So if you have an MRI that shows a large you know, abscess that's near the instrumentation, that's enough to, to classify it as a deep surgical site infection or diagnosis of deep surgical site infection by a surgeon or attending physician. So what's the incidence of surgical site infections when, when dealing with postoperative spine patients? The, the literature varies widely uh, depending on the, the study you look at. It ranges from you know, 0.7% to 12%. And this is based on several factors and you know, what types of surgery you're looking at, 
and uh, patient risk factors. There are several risk factors that are known to be associated with, with surgical site infections. These range from, from age, so typically older patients are going to be at increased risk. Obesity status, you know, and it's obvious. Uh, in the year 2021, obesity is, is, a, is a, you know, big deal and an epidemic. So with that, we see increasing rates of surgical site infections. Diabetics typically have an increased risk of, of surgical site infections. Urinary incontinence, I think it makes, makes sense, um, but it's not probably something that we, we think of if somebody is you know, incontinent of urine. You know, that's going to increase the risk of, of surgical site infections. Uh, tobacco or nicotine use is a big one, and this is certainly a modifiable risk factor. And so um, we'll talk a little bit about some of the, you know, screening and modification tactics, but definitely uh, current or very recent uh, tobacco users are at increased risk of surgical site infections. Poor nutritional status, they're just not going to heal as well. So sometimes checking uh, albumin or pre-albumin beforehand uh, to kind of classify that nutritional status will be helpful. Complete neurologic injury. You know, again, for obvious reasons, they're not going to be as mobile. Just laying on posterior spinal incisions is going to, you know, increase wound breakdown and, and risk surgical site infections. Revision surgeries, of course, going back through scar tissue, they're just not going to heal as well. And so sometimes um, in these, these big spinal operations, they've been operated on multiple times. You're going back through, you know, multiple layers of scar tissue. Always uh, something to, to keep in mind that those patients are going to be at increased risk. Uh, posterior approaches. So that's mainly what we're going to focus on today. Anterior approaches, ACDFs, very low infection rate. Posterior cervical thoracic, lumbar, basically anything posterior is going to have a, has an increased risk of surgical site infections compared to anterior approaches. And then there's some, you know, factors within surgery. So high EBL or estimated blood loss. We know that the higher the blood loss, the higher the risk of, of infection. It's probably multifactorial. High blood loss tends to be from bigger surgeries, bigger incisions. When we're talking about like spinal deformity surgery, like multiple levels of osteotomies, so especially like vertebral column resections or pedicle subtraction osteotomies where you're doing aggressive three-column osteotomies, those are longer surgeries, blood loss goes up. Uh, you're typically instrumenting a lot of levels. Those are all associated with increased rates of surgical site infections. So during the planning phase of a surgery, you know, keeping those things in mind and, and really figuring out which patients are going to be at, at higher risk. And, and maybe those are ones that need you know, additional strategies to try and cut down on infection risk. And then tumor surgery. So if you're doing, you know, tumor resections, you know, whether that's, you know, primary spinal tumors, which are, are relatively rare or, or from metastatic disease, just the fact of, you know, doing surgery for a tumor increases the risk. And that's probably, again, multifactorial uh, if they have systemic disease from multiple metastases. If you're doing surgery, you know, there's a probably a good reason you're doing it. Maybe they have neurologic compromise from, from spinal cord compression. There's a reason you're not just doing radiation. So, you know, those, those again go with, you know, the neurologic injury, uh, typically a posterior approach uh, or combined approach, just uh, operating on spine for tumor resection increases risk of, of infections. Here's a relatively recent study from last year. It was a, a systematic review looking at uh, organisms that were isolated for surgical site infections. So um, we know that most commonly in the, in the top couple lines there, um, we're gonna see gram positive bacteria when we're dealing with surgical site infections. So uh, amongst 13 studies, uh, they found that 60% were gram positive with 25% um, gram negative. So you do see gram negative organisms, but it tends to be gram positive. And then looking at the different genus uh, for bacteria, Staph aureus tends to be uh, most common, and any Staphylococcus species is about 50% uh, 
Um, and if you look down to the Staphylococcus uh, species, almost 40% were Staph aureus with about 22% Staph epidermidis. There are, you know, other, other causative agents, you know, Streptococcus, and then the gram negatives, Enterococcus, uh, E. coli, Klebsiella, uh, less common. And then at the bottom, looking at the uh, methicillin uh, sensitivity, so um, SSA, uh, which is methicillin sensitive, and then MRSA, which is methicillin resistant, tends to be 30% sensitive and 23% resistant. So why do we care about surgical site infections? Several reasons. Uh, one is, of course, uh, cost. And, you know, as time goes on, cost becomes, you know, more and more of an issue within healthcare. And, you know, how can we reduce costs? And reducing surgical site infections is certainly a way that we can reduce costs uh, of surgery. When patients are, are readmitted for surgical site infections, it's, it's very costly. Recent studies have shown that, that almost half of 30-day readmissions after spine surgery are, are due to surgical site infections. And the costs are going up every year. But uh, SSI treatment costs range from you know, 15000 to almost 39000 in one recent study. And, and again, these numbers just keep climbing every year. If you think about all the costs associated, you know you're you're admitting the patient to to the floor of the ICU if they're if they're sick and, and have sepsis. A lot of times they're getting repeat surgeries for for washout. They're in the hospital for several days waiting on on cultures to grow. Um, they're doing typically you know long term IV antibiotics. Um, a lot of times six eight weeks if they have instrumentation in. Sometimes you need to to remove instrumentation and, and reinstrument. Or, or swap out instrumentation, depending on the, the type of infection that's going on, which, which certainly adds to cost. So all those things can add to, uh, add to cost. Beyond cost, I mean, patient satisfaction. So patients are not happy when they have surgical site infections, they get readmitted, they're in the hospital, they're going through more surgeries, um, has a big uh, impact on patient satisfaction. And you know, again, patient satisfaction is, is becoming more and more important. Obviously, we want happy patients, but reimbursement a lot of times is being tied to patient satisfaction scores. You know, some places will have, you know, bonuses, things like that tied to patient satisfaction scores. So, you know, ha having, you know, poor patient satisfaction scores are, are again, financially not good for the surgeon. There's several websites where people can go and upload ratings and reviews of surgeons. And so um, certainly pretty much every clinic, I have people that come in and say, hey, I, I looked you up and you know you had you know good ratings or I read this about you or, or, or whatever. And so if you have a bunch of angry patients, usually the ones that, that leave reviews are either very angry or, or very happy. And so you get a bunch of uh, very angry patients, you're not gonna have very good reviews and, and that can you know, definitely affect your practice. We talk a lot about surgical site infections. There's other uh, surgical site complications. So things like seromas or, or, or fluid collections uh, underneath the incision. Um, sometimes these are not a big deal. Sometimes patients come in and say, hey, I have this fluid collection and it's just a little bit of a dissatisfier. They know it's there, they can feel it. Um, sometimes the wound will break down because of it. So looking at ways to, to reduce risk of seromas, uh, superficial wound dehiscence, you know, a lot of times not a big deal, but again, a dissatisfier. If the patient's uh, wound dehisces and then it heals by secondary intention, it's not gonna look as good. They're potentially gonna need to come back and, and get the wound checked multiple times and you know, potentially get a superficial infection if it, if it dehisces. And then one thing that not a lot of people talk about, but is the need for follow-up or wound monitoring. And so, you know, we have a lot of patients at Ohio State that are coming in from, you know, several hours away. You know, if they need to, you know, you see the wound two weeks after and you say, mm, just doesn't look great. Like, I want you to, you know, come back in in a week. We're going to check it again, or maybe leave the staples for another week or leave the stitches for another week. Or can you, you know, in a week, can you take a picture of it and send us the pictures, email us the pictures. 
you know, those are dissatisfiers. The patients are going to have to, you know, make more trips, driving, spend more time in the car, some more time, you know, sitting in the waiting room. You know, they're, they're going to be worried about it. They're going to be, you know, um, so those are just dissatisfiers. Every time I, you know, tell a patient, you, you know, why don't you come back in another week and then we'll take the staples out. I just don't love the way it looks. You know, that, that eats up another, you know, clinic slot where I could be seeing, you know, another new patient and, and uh, potentially signing up another surgery. And so it has financial factors as well. The biggest thing I think is, you know, patients are happy. If, if they come back and incision looks great, they're happy. That's the one thing that they can see. Um, so you want, you want the incisions looking good. So we have several strategies to help, you know, reduce surgical site infections. So, you know, before surgery, planning phase, things you can do during surgery. And we'll kind of, we'll kind of talk about some of those here. So pre-incision strategies. What are you going to do before that patient gets to the OR, before you're cutting skin? Glycemic control is a big one. So there's a recent study that shows that patients with A1Cs above seven had significantly uh, higher risk of, of surgical site infection. So if you can get that patient's uh, diabetes optimized, get their A1C below seven, um, that's gonna go a long ways to significantly reducing the risk of, of surgical site infections. Easier said than done. And so uh, I like patients moving their parameters in the correct direction. I don't have a hard and fast cutoff. Uh, some surgeons certainly might, but being in the in in Ohio in the Midwest, if you know, if I had everyone below a certain BMI and A1C less than seven, I probably wouldn't operate very much. So I like them to move it in the right direction. So if they can take that to, from A1C of nine to seven and a half, that's certainly better than than you know just leaving it at nine and, and going ahead and scheduling surgery. So uh, I really work towards getting the A1C down the best I can. And so whether that's with the patient's primary care physician or the patient's endocrinologist or getting them referred to an endocrinologist, I think that's important uh, prior to jumping into, into surgery. Again, this is taken with, with other factors. So if they're going to be, uh, you know, minimally invasive microdiscectomy, you know, that risk of infection is probably lower. Uh, if they're going to be a T3 to pelvis with pedicle subtraction osteotomy, that's a long surgery. It's a lot of levels. It's a big incision. It's a lot of blood loss. Those factors we talked about before. And so that's going to be a higher risk. And so it's going to be more important to optimize these other factors, A1C and things like that. Another modifiable risk factor is smoking cessation. So uh, ideally, they would stop smoking for uh, you know, more than, than four to eight weeks. So cessation less than four weeks is not associated with reduction of surgical site infection. So I'm typically nicotine testing these patients. Again, uh, it depends on what surgery they're having. If they're myelopathic and they you know, can't wait, can't stop, you know, that's, you know, a different story than someone who's going to, you know, undergo that, that long segment deformity correction surgery. Um, I'm a little more strict about making sure they're stopping nicotine testing. I'm getting negative nicotine tests at multiple time points, you know, in my clinic and the, you know, anesthesia pre-op clinic. Because, you know, if they're just done for a couple of weeks, you know, the odds of them starting to smoke again are much higher if they're, you know, able to stop for, for a longer period of time that's going to be less, less chance of a, of a relapse or starting to, to smoke again. The next pre-incision strategy would be obesity and, you know, reduction of, of BMI. We know that a, a BMI greater than 30 uh, is associated with increased risk of, of surgical site infections. I kind of joke that this is a semi-modifiable uh, risk factor. Uh, I have had some success getting patients to, to reduce BMI, but, but it's a very difficult one, especially if patients have a lot of, you know, back pain, radiculopathy, they're not able to exercise real well. You know, sometimes I'll have them evaluated by our comprehensive weight loss clinic uh, to see if there's some different techniques or strategies or uh, even surgical uh, strategies like, like gastric bands or gastric bypass to try and get that BMI down. 
again, along with like the A1C, if they can take that BMI and move it in the right direction, I think it shows that they're motivated and they're willing to, to put effort in. I think that's a positive. It's, I don't have a hard and fast BMI cutoff, but we know that, you know, as that BMI increases, surgical site infections also, also increase. Preoperative screening uh, is important. So uh, as standard of care at, at our institution, uh, patients are getting screened by nasal swabs uh, for MSSA and MRSA. And carriers are treated with tranasal ointment, antibiotic ointment, uh, as well as chlorhexidine uh, wash in the shower uh, for five days before. The patient's MRSA positive or methicillin resistant, uh, staph aureus positive. Then we're using uh, vancomycin preoperatively prior to skin incision, 15 milligrams per kilogram. And lastly, uh, you know, perioperative antibiotics. Everyone that's undergoing, you know, surgery of, of any, any sort is, is getting preoperative antibiotics. And prior to the incision, uh, redose typically every four hours for ANSEF during the operation. And there's some, some debate about kind of after, I typically do 24 hours after, after surgery. Uh, and again, if they're MRSA positive, uh, then they're getting vancomycin for the, you know, along with their, their preoperative antibiotics. The other strategies are intraoperative strategies. And so things you're doing in the OR uh, to kind of reduce the risk of, of infection. So skin antisepsis is, of course, you know, vital importance. Um, so the idea is to reduce the flora on the skin prior to uh, making incision. So one recent study uh, looked at 100 consecutive patients undergoing lumbar spine surgery, um, and they compared Duraprep uh, to Choraprep, two different formulations of, of a surgical site prep. They obtained cultures before the prep, after the prep, as well as uh, after closure. And they really found no difference between the two prep solutions. So I, I think that that just you know, shows that, that you, know, you, have, you have some different options on what to use. This is the uh, surgical site prep from 3M. It's a combination of, of iodine and isopropyl alcohol. This is the one that they studied, the, the Dura prep, and, and really found no difference to the uh, chloroprep. Another intraoperative strategy that, that I, I utilize is, is using adhesive dressings. And so, there was a recent systematic review that looked at um, use of adhesive dressings in orthopedic procedures. So this was, you know, several different types of orthopedic procedures, one of which was patients undergoing lumbar surgery. And two uh, specifically looked at Ioban, which is a, a, another 3M product. And they found a reduction in wound contamination um, with the use of adhesive dressings versus not using adhesive dressings. And we'll talk about kind of what those are and how to, how to use them here in a second. And this is another recent study. So this looked at uh, a large volume of patients, 5,100. Um, and these were in cardiac surgery patients. It's a little bit different, different patient population, but I think this is a very good study. They looked at the standard non-iodine impregnated drapes, uh, as well as Ioban 2, which is the iodine impregnated adhesive dressing. And they found significant reduction in surgical site infections with the latter, the uh, Ioban 2 iodine impregnated dressing. So 6.5% versus 1.9%, uh, which was statistically significant. Um, so again, a different patient population, but I think this is a very good study looking at a lot of patients. And this is kind of what the Ioban 2 dressing looks like. So it's antibiotic impregnated. Basically, you're you know peeling off the uh, plastic and then putting the sticky side down. You know, it's adhesive, so it sticks to the patient's skin. Um, then you pull off the border and and you can make your incision through that. Other intraoperative strategies uh, during surgery. So surgical hand antisepsis is important. 
This mimics the antiseptis for, for patient preps. You want to reduce the uh, flora on your skin. And there's really no firm evidence favoring one prep solution or, or method uh, over another. Avoiding intraoperative hypothermia, I think is important. Again, there's a recent uh, Cochrane review that uh, shows lower rates of surgical site infections in patients that used uh, forced air warming. So, you know, blankets that are blowing warm air, uh, kind of keeping the patient's temperature up. Um, this is an abdominal surgery, but again, I think uh, some evidence in other types of surgery that, that this would be a, you know, potentially a good strategy. I typically do use these as well. And then lastly, other things you can do during surgery would be antibiotic irrigation, like betadine irrigation, or applying vancomycin powder or, or antibiotic powder to the incision, you know, prior to closure. And again, I, I do both of these. There's some mixed data in the literature on, on vancomycin powder. Some studies showing a reduced rate of surgical site infections, uh, others not, and uh, some showing you know, a skewing towards more kind of gram negative species in those surgical site infections. Um, uh, I typically do use vancomycin powder, but um, there's some mixed literature on the, on the topic. But there is a recent report uh, showing that when betadine irrigation is used, that that is a valuable strategy for reducing surgical site infections. Other post operative strategies. So, you know, what dressing or what you're closing with. So uh, skin adhesive or, or glue, um, where you're forming a, a barrier over that incision is one technique. Uh, occlusive dressings that are, are, again, forming a barrier and preventing, you know, things after surgery from getting in, into the incision. Silver impregnated dressings, uh, so it has some antibiotic properties. Or the negative pressure wound therapy. Um, so these are those wound vacs that we'll be talking about um, that go over a, a closed incision. So there's starting to be um, some more uh, data and literature regarding the, the negative pressure wound therapy. There's a lot of literature in, in orthopedic, so like uh, orthopedic trauma, orthopedic joint, cardiothoracic, uh, plastic surgery, and Recently, there's been some, some mounting evidence in, in spine that uh, we'll talk about. Um, so here's one study from 2014. This is out of Duke, I believe. Um, so they looked at 160 patients, 46 of, of whom underwent uh, negative pressure wound therapy. And they looked at patients undergoing surgery for thoracolumbar deformity. Um, so these are going to be larger surgeries, longer incisions, you know, more osteotomies, more blood loss. And they showed a 50% decrease in wound dehiscence in the little graph on the left there, and about a 30% reduction in surgical site infections. Length of stay was the same between these groups. This is our data from Ohio State. So we wanted to look at, you know, um, some other patient populations. Um, we know that the deformity surgery uh, patients are getting large surgeries, higher blood loss. Uh, we just wanted to look at, at posterior fusions in general. So we looked at, at anyone that was undergoing a, a posterior instrumented fusion, uh, cervical thoracic, deformity, lumbar degenerative, so one and two level T-lifts. And we uh, matched a cohort uh, retrospectively looking at, at patients who got treated with the negative pressure wound therapy versus, versus not. And these uh, Provena is the uh, name brand of the uh, negative pressure wound therapy that we used for this study. It was left in place for seven days. And I'll show you in a little bit here what it looks like when it's in place and, and kind of how to place it and stuff. And then we analyzed for any post-operative wound complications. So we did a one-way ANOVA for univariate and uh, for multivariate analysis. We looked at, of course, surgical site infections. And we also looked at incidents of post-operative seroma or, or fluid collections, superficial dehiscence, and like we had mentioned before, uh, need for any 
additional outpatient wound management. So patients that needed to come back, patients that needed, you know, staples or stitches to stay in a little while longer, anything like that, that was, you know, outside of the normal, just normal, you know, two week follow-up we documented. And so this is what we found on the left here is our, our patient demographics. And so largely the same across the two cohorts. We did find that uh, actually in the Provena group, there was a, a higher rate of, of tobacco use, current tobacco use, 35% versus 16%. And then on the right is our findings. So most importantly, surgical site infection uh, was significantly lower uh, in our, our Provena group versus our control group. And then things like superficial dehiscence, uh, need for additional uh, outpatient care, seroma uh, formation, uh, any sort of operative uh, revision, uh, or any wound complication combining those all had a trend towards uh, reduction in the uh, Provena group uh, versus the control group. So one thing I always you know, ask myself when we're, we're talking about, you know, potentially utilizing a, a new tool is, you know, why wouldn't I use this? Or, you know, why wouldn't another surgeon, you know, use this? A big one is interruption of normal workflow. You know, when you're putting the dressings on, it's at the end of the case, it's a long case, you're tired, you're ready to, to get out of there. So that's one, one thing I think people, people bring up is, you know, is this going to add time? Is this going to disrupt my normal way of doing things? I've been doing things the same way for a long time. And, and I'll show you a video in a sec here of how, how this uh, negative pressure therapy device uh, goes on. And, and it's, it's very quick and easy. Uh, it does not take a lot of time. In the video, we'll kind of show all the parts of, of putting it on. But I have my, my surgical scrub tech uh, kind of prepare this on the back table. So when it's ready to go, it just kind of goes right on. Cost is another thing it's is you know are, are these gonna cost a lot more than traditional dressings they do cost more than traditional dressings but we're, we're starting to gather some evidence that if you're factoring in the cost of readmissions and, and washouts and antibiotics um, for surgical site infections this could potentially be a, a cost savings uh, mechanism if you can reduce the rate of, of readmissions of you know, need for antibiotics need for additional surgery this could actually be a cost savings uh, measure. And, you know, people are worried, is this going to be a hassle for myself as the provider or for the patients? Are the patients going to, you know, not like this? Um, the, the use of these negative pressure wound therapies are, they're actually uh, very easy. You know, the patient doesn't need to mess with it. They don't need dressing changes. It goes on. Stays there for seven days as a little pump device that they clip to their belt, and so it's very easy, and then it, it comes off easy. So I'm not having patients come back to my clinic to take this off; it just peels right off, and they do that at home. Uh, they recycle the little device when they come in for for their staples or stitches or wound checks, but otherwise the dressing itself just peels right off, and my patients are able to do that at home. So here's a video of putting these on. I'll kind of narrate. So this is the customizable Provena. So basically um, we're measuring, you know, how, how long of a, you know, sponge do we need? My resin's cutting it here. And this is the part that a lot of times I have my uh, scrub tech do on the back table ahead of time. But I just wanted to show kind of all the steps here. It's, it has a sticky substance on each side. And then there's a little... Uh, adhesive um, that you put on the on the top and bottom depending on you know how long you cut it so then you have a, a sticky adhesive all the way uh, around your incision so this i'm just uh um, sticking that on each side and so this is the part that i you know you measure the incision ahead of time and the, and the scrub tech can get this all set on the back table so it's ready to go once the sticky's on there it just sticks down right over the incision then these little uh, things peel off on the sides. So now they're sticky on the patient as well as up, up towards you. And then this, this adhesive dressing goes over the top of it. So it's going to stick to the patient. It's also going to stick around those sticky borders around the, around the sponge. So it sticks right on there. 
there's a one that peels off first, there's a two that peels off there, and then the little blue tab uh, rips right off. So now your incision is totally covered. And now you uh, attach the, uh, the, the negative pressure pump. So here's my you know, resident cutting a little hole in this, and then here's me saying, no, 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 cut it in a circle. Um, so if you just pick it up and, and cut a little circle, you just need a little opening in the plastic. And then this uh, sticks right on top of it. So the one comes off first, sticks right on there. And then the uh, thing that's labeled two peels off and then the little blue tab. And, uh, and that's it. So that's, that's all hooked up. And then you just hook up your little uh, pump device here. And I'll show you in a, in a minute kind of what that looks like. So our, our incisions all protected and, and stuff. So you can tear down the drapes now if you want. Um, we'll just hook up this pump just to kind of show you here. So it just connects like that. Then you push the power button and uh, turns on and, and starts to suction. So uh, we'll kind of zoom in here. You can see how that, that purple sponge kind of sucks down. And that's that negative, uh, negative pressure there. That's it. So just a couple minutes, and if you have this set up on the back table ahead of time, it goes even quicker. You can get this on in like 30 to 45 seconds. And this is what it looks like after. Uh, I like this uh, 3M uh, adhesive sponge tape uh, that goes around around the borders. I found that, you know, as patients are laying on these uh, posterior incisions, they're moving around in bed or sweaty you know, can start to kind of peel up the corners. So I like to make this border of, of tape around it. And I still use drains just like I, I normally would if I was going to use a drain for a case. Um, I try to keep it underneath the, uh, the tape is fine. I try to keep it away from the uh, underneath the uh, dressing of the provena so I don't have to take it down and, and redo it. Uh, the tape is easy enough to reinforce if you need to. And again, these are staying for seven days. So from my practice, you know, what do I do? Preoperative labs, check an A1C. I want to make sure that it's as low as I can get it, ideally uh, below seven. Uh, I'm doing nicotine testing and I want them to be at least four to eight weeks nicotine free. BMI optimization. So uh, ideal world, uh, less than 30. Uh, but if they can reduce that, that BMI somewhat, um, I think that's a good prognostic sign that they're willing to you know, put in work and, and to move the needle in the right direction uh, before surgery. All my patients are getting screened by nasal swabs for, for MSSA and MRSA. They're getting preoperative antibiotics, typically ANSEF, uh, with the addition of vancomycin if they are MRSA positive. And I'll typically do 24 hours postoperative antibiotics, regardless of, of uh, drain status. So I'm not keeping antibiotics longer and if they have you know, drains that stay longer than that. Uh, I am using the antimicrobial incised drapes, the ones where you, you iodine pregnated, um, stick to the patient and make an incision through those. I uh, do use the forced air uh, patient warming, uh, try and keep the patient's uh, body temperatures you know, as close to normal as, as possible during surgery. And then I am using antibiotic irrigation and typically vancomycin powder, uh, you know, Prior to prior to closure, and I've I've kind of migrated my practice to using these these closed incision negative wound pressure therapy for any posterior instrumentation. Um, so I'm not typically using them for like minimally invasive surgeries, MIS decompressions, anterior approaches, but I, I've kind of migrated from going from those high risk deformity cases to okay, if they're obesity and, and nicotine and diabetics to pretty much every posterior instrumented uh, case, just because we've seen such you know, good results with them. The, they come back and the, the things you, that are hard to report in a paper are, um, you know, incisions that just look really good. You know, they don't come back and like, mm, you know, it's all right. It's probably going to be fine. They come back and you say, wow, that looks great. And so, so I've kind of migrated to using these for all my posterior instrumentations. All right, so we'll go through a few cases here. So 
First case here, uh, this is a, a 57-year-old gentleman. He presents with back pain and, and radiculopathy. Neurologically intact. You know, his past medical history, things that, that make me kind of think about, you know, is he going to be at increased risk of, of surgical site infections? So he's a diabetic, type 2, uh, his last A1C, 7.3. Not a terrible, but it is above that, that 7 mark. Also has a history of Lynch syndrome, which is a tumor syndrome. He's had multiple prior lumbar surgeries. So he underwent an L5-S1 A-lift, did a L2-3 X-lift with a posterior facet screw, he underwent an L3-4 T-lift. He's undergone multiple decompressions prior to these surgeries. Uh, he also had a spinal cord stimulator placed. So he's had a, numerous um, surgeries before. So we're gonna be going through scar tissue. We know that revision surgeries have a higher infection rate. And just with this much stuff in, you know, it's probably gonna be a larger, larger surgery. So this is what his imaging looks like. So on the left uh, lateral x-ray, so you can see the kind of the, the hodgepodge of instrumentation, the uh, x-lift with the facet screw below that, the posterior instrumentation with the, with the t-lift, uh, has a skipped level uh, at L4-5, he has a 5-1-A lift there. It does appear relatively you know, fused at those, those prior levels. Um, but you can see on his parasagittal CT here that, that skip level at L4-5 is a lot of foraminal stenosis. He has a lot of facet arthropathy above, again, a lot of foraminal stenosis, facet arthropathy. Uh, so he's really getting a Jason level disease above uh, as well as the uh, you know, severe degenerative changes at that L4-5 level kind of between his two prior fusions. So his, his sagittal balance, I don't have his scoliosis x-rays up. It's not terrible. But to address all these, he's really going to get a deformity style surgery. Even though we're not needed to do a lot of osteotomies, correct, you know, adding a lot of lumbar lordosis or anything. Just the fact of, of doing a long multi-segment, you know, degenerative case, he's going to get a, a long surgery. So we offer the patient T10 to pelvis uh, instrumentation and infusion. And we, uh, we're going to do a vacuum-assisted wound closure. So um, we don't want to stop at the thoracolumbar junction. Again, he's got multiple you know, levels of, of prior instrumentation. Um, so he's going to really get a, a deformity-style surgery, even though we're not, not really correcting a deformity. So here's his, his post-operative x-rays. So uh, we did a, a, a T-lift at that 4-5 level. And then spared his spinal cord stimulator here uh, and, and did a T10 to pelvis uh, instrumentation infusion. So uh, a long construct, um, you know, just, you know, we're not doing ma major osteotomies, but uh, blood loss is not going to be, you know, insignificant for these just because it's a, a large open surgery, revision surgery. Which is why, you know, I think, uh, you know, a case like this is a good one to, to potentially use that uh, negative pressure wound therapy on. So he did well, uh, discharged to home on post-operative day seven. So if patients are in the hospital till, till post-operative day seven, I'll typically take these uh, negative pressure uh, devices off prior to discharge. Uh, if they discharge home earlier, um, I typically send the patients home with it. Uh, the device has a power button and there's seven lights that light up around it and those will click off. And those signify uh, the number of days remaining of the battery. So it's designed to, to last and stay in place for seven days. After seven days, it turns off and then the dressing just peels right off. So again, I, I have the patients do that at home. If they're in the hospital. This gentleman stayed until the post-up day seven. I'll take this off before he goes home. I'll typically use staples um, with these. You can use incisional glue. But in my mind, I think, you know, um, you do get some of that uh, reduction of exudate and, and seroma by, you know, having that negative pressure there, kind of pulling that, that out of the incision. Um, usually it drains for a day or two, has a little uh, reservoir on the, on the device that can empty if you need it. After that, it usually doesn't put out anymore. And I am using uh, traditional subfascial drains along with the uh, negative pressure wound therapy. So here's the patient and comes back on, on post-operative day 13 for stable removal. And you can see that, I mean, there's not a lot of SCAR. It's just a, a good-looking incision. So this is before the staples come out. This is after, and my nurse typically will uh, paint the staple sites with some, some iodine. But it just uh, is a 
you know, good looking incision. I, I don't have concerns about this, that this is going to be something that we need to keep, you know, staples in or have them come back in a week to check it. Um, it's just, just looking, looking good. Second case here. So this is a 58 year old female. She presents with severe back pain, uh, radiating leg pain, uh, radiculopathy. She's alert and oriented. She's neurologically intact. She does have some diminished sensation in her legs and feet. And she does have quite an intelligent gait, um, uses a cane to walk. She's obese, uh, BMI is 37, uh, you know, gone through the normal things, you know, conservative management, physical therapy, water physical therapy, which I like a lot for these patients, uh, epidural steroid injections. And, you know, we, we talk about it, but she's really not able to get her weight down. She's not able to walk very far. She's using a cane to walk. She's just not able to do the exercising and stuff to, to significantly reduce that, that BMI. So, so she's kind of stuck. Here's her uh, imaging. So her AP and lateral x-rays there on, on the left and in the middle, uh, and then her uh, sagittal MRI on the right. So you can see she's got significant degenerative changes, uh, L2-3, L3-4, where she has disc base collapse in these you know, disc osteophyte complexes. Uh, L4-5, she has a grade one spondy. She has foraminal stenosis at that level. And then at L5-S1, again, significant degenerative changes with disc base collapse. So Again, this is, is not really a deformity, but this is a uh, you know, multi-level degenerative uh, disease with multiple levels of foraminal stenosis. So, so you know, again, to, to address all these levels, I think it's going to be a, a relatively large surgery, uh, along with the, you know, the obesity that increases risk for, for wound problems. We talked to the patient about uh, addressing all of her levels of, of degenerative pathology from L2-3 down to L5-S1. So we offered an L2 to pelvis instrumentation infusion. You know, some, some people might not extend this to pelvis. With uh, Once we get up to L2 and definitely above L2, I typically do uh, reinforce with instrumentation, especially if the patient has any sort of you know, signs of osteopenia. Not everyone would, but, but I typically do. And then we did inner bodies at L4-5 and L5-S1, posterior T-lifts, and did a vacuum-assisted wound closure. So here is her post-operative x-rays. So here's her L2 to pelvis. We have, we have T-lifts at F4-5 and L5-S1. And on the right here is uh, what her incision looked like. This is at, at six weeks. You can see it's a longer incision. Not, not as long as a, a tendon pelvis or, or a you know, T3 to pelvis, but, you know, pretty significant incision and, and again, just looks, you know, really good. And, and this is at six weeks. And I have one more case here. So this is kind of management of a, of a complex wound and, you know, uh, avoiding problems was, is what a lot of this talk has been about, but um, what do you do if, if you have a problem? Uh, so this is a 55-year-old gentleman. Uh, he's a smoker. He's malnourished. And he has a complex uh, history. He started his journey in July of 2017, underwent a two-level corpectomy at an outside institution. And this is complicated by pseudoarthrosis, graft subsidence. He underwent multiple revision surgeries more levels of corpectomy because of the subsidence from the front. He went through posterior instrumentation, uh, multiple revisions, both the anterior and posterior. Unfortunately, he got a wound infection, both anterior and posterior. And so he was started on IV antibiotics and he was sent to our institution for, for escalated care. Exam, he's deconditioned. He's full strength, five out of five. He does have a mild sensory deficit in his right arm. And this is what his uh, images look like. So on the left, there is a lateral x-ray. You can see the instrumentation in the front has been removed. Uh, he's got severe uh, bony destruction from, from infection and from multiple levels of, of corpectomy. And his post-instrumentation is failing. So C2 instrumentation, C3 is pulled out. His uh, CT is on the right there. Uh, you can see he still has some staples in place. 
some air posteriorly indicating, you know, probable infection ongoing. Here's his MRI. So he doesn't have any ongoing cord compression, which is good. And then here is, is what his incision looked like. So he was in a halo vest given the uh, problems with the instrumentation and the instrumentation failure. And you can see his, his wound is, is coming apart and, and is grossly infected. So the question becomes, what do we do with this guy? We need to treat the infection. We need to get his neck stabilized, prevent him from, from you know, injuring his spinal cord and kyphosing over. So we offer the patient a washout and debriefment and placement of an irrigating wound back. So leaving the incision open, placing the wound back in the open incision that, that continuously irrigates. He went back multiple times, exploration, further debriefment, waited until you know, that, that tissue starts to appear more healthy. We then revised his instrumentation, uh, did a new C2 to T2. Luckily, we avoided our salvage was going to be an occiput to, to thoracic, but we were able to get good purchase. And then closure with plastics, uh, they did a trapezius muscle flap and placement of a new negative pressure uh, wound therapy device. So after it was closed, then we used the, the Provena incision wound back on that, left that for seven days. And uh, this is what he looked like after. So I was very concerned, you know, anteriorly, is he going to need more support? Luckily, we were able to get good purchase posteriorly, and he ended up uh, fusing. So he's about a year out at these x-rays and uh, healed well and fused well. So the combination of the irrigating wound vac, multiple uh, debriefments, and then with the trapezius flap and the uh, closed negative pressure um, wound therapy, we were able to, to salvage this and, and get him clear from infection. So... So that's what I have today. Thank you very much for checking out our program here. And you know, if, if any questions about anything, uh, not too hard to find online, you can and email me any, any questions you have. So uh, thank you very much.